Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining the PIM webinar. I am Frank Place, Director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. This is our ninth and final webinar in, in 2018, so thank you for joining us. Um, let me remind you that you can find our previous webinars on our website, which is pim.cgiar.org, PIM under the Resources tab. Today's topic is called Aspirations, Trust, and Poverty Reduction. I am pleased to introduce our speaker today. Katrina Kosick is a Senior Research Fellow in the Development Strategy and Governance Division at the International Food Policy Research Institute, where she is theme leader for public investment. She works at the intersection of political economy, development economics, and public economics. Her research focuses on the linkages between governance, public investment, and poverty. One strand of work investigates the impacts of decentralization and local political competition on welfare and poverty. A second strand considers individual aspirations, including what drives them and how they influence economic, political, and social behaviors and opinions. And a third strand of her research considers the drivers and impacts of migration. Uh, within the PIM program, Katrina leads the research cluster on gender, agricultural productivity, and rural transformation under our flagship on cross-cutting gender research and coordination. Katrina holds a PhD in political economics from Stanford University, where she was a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow in economics. Before handing over to Katrina, I would like to explain how we will proceed. So Katrina will begin very shortly with a presentation that you will see on your screens, and the presentation will last for about 30 minutes. During the presentation, we invite all of you to send in questions or comments via the chat or window questions, uh, question windows that you see on the right side of your screens. We'll collate the questions and we try to group them according to topical area or theme uh, and pose them to Katrina in groups. Once we are in the Q&A session, our speaker will address the questions. We handle it this way to make the best use of our one hour together. And we are, just a reminder, we are recording the webinar and we will make it available on our website shortly after the live event in case you want to uh, view it again or, or, or uh, inform your friends and colleagues to go to go to the website to see it. So with that um, brief introduction, I'll hand it over to Katrina. Thank you so much for the introduction, Frank, and thanks to everyone online for joining us. Um, please do share this with your friends afterwards. Uh, so the focus of this webinar, as you can kind of tell from the title, is on the psychological costs of poverty. And I uh, specifically want to focus on two negative and costly outcomes that can result from experiencing poverty and um, economic vulnerability. These are, um, first of all, having low aspirations or ambitions for the future. Uh, and the second is having low levels of trust or confidence in one's government. In the course of this webinar, I'm gonna to talk to you about what aspirations and trust are, first of all, and why policymakers should care about them. And in short, what we're gonna see is that policymakers do not want citizens to have low aspirations or low levels of trust in their government because it really can erode opportunities for economic growth and even government accountability itself. Um, and I'm also going to talk to you about what policymakers who want to raise aspirations and raise trust in government can actually do to achieve this. Now, to give you a brief outline um, and roadmap for the talk, 
first we're going to discuss why psychological outcomes like aspirations and trust are so important. In particular, what do they imply for individuals' behaviors and decisions? And then what does this imply for society as a whole? Second, I'm going to present some evidence on the relationship between poverty and economic vulnerability and these psychological outcomes. Specifically, what does this experience of poverty and vulnerability do to aspirations for the future? And what does it do to trust in government more broadly? And finally, uh, I want to discuss the ability and role of policy for addressing any negative psychological impacts of poverty and economic vulnerability. That is, what can policymakers who realize the value of individuals having high aspirations and high levels of trust in government really do to ensure that they remain high? Now, before I try to convince you that aspirations are important and worthy of policymakers' attention, I want to step back and answer the question, what are aspirations? Quite simply, aspirations are individuals' goals for the future. Uh, there is essentially an infinite number of domains that an individual might care about and have aspirations in, but some commonly examined domains include household income, household asset wealth, educational attainment, often how many years of education do you want for your children, the level of social status within your community, and the level of security uh, that you enjoy. Aspirations are then simply the goals that individuals set for themselves in each of these domains. For example, let's, let's consider a poor person. What level of household income do they ultimately say that they would like to obtain? And if you add up all of the assets that an individual owns, what is the value of asset wealth that they would like to obtain? How many years of education would they like for their children to obtain? If you could describe their social status and their standing in the community, say on a, on a scale from one to 10, where would they like to ultimately stand on this ladder? And I want you to carefully note here that aspirations are really preferences rather than expectations. If an individual tells us what their aspirations are in a given domain, they are effectively telling us where they would like to eventually be. Now, Ben Dalton and co-authors have described citizens with high aspirations as being people who, quote, visualize the future and engage in forward-looking behavior. And we're gonna talk a little about this in a minute of what people with high aspirations do. But I wanted to just show you here kind of a, an idea of, as an economist, how do we examine and consider aspirations as a concept? Again, we could ask citizens what their aspirations or ambitions for the future are in essentially an infinite number of domains. You may have goals in a lot of areas of your life. But as economists, if we want to measure aspirations, we need to focus on a few tangible domains hoping that these broadly, broadly represent the types of goals that motivate an individual to act. On this slide, you can see the five domains we used in a 2016 uh, survey that IFPRI carried out in Kyrgyzstan in about 2,500 rural households. Uh, these five domains here that we considered are income, asset wealth, social status, education for children, and security. 
And we asked individuals what they would like to achieve in each of these five domains. We actually just put a game board out that showed the pictures you can see on your screen here and asked them what they would like to obtain in each domain. We asked for exact amounts in currency and local currency and sums of income and asset wealth. We asked for what levels of education they would like their children to obtain, um, and we recoded that as years of education. And we asked on a five-step ladder, what's the level of social status you would like to obtain, and what's the level of security you would like to obtain? And we described with these that sort of at the bottom of the ladder in the case of social status was having a very low profile um, social status. The highest step on the ladder was being one of the most influential, high status members of the community. Um, and similarly for, for security, having a very low and precarious situation of security or being, feeling completely confident that you are secure um, physically, emotionally, et cetera. So for different individuals, you're already probably imagining uh, that different domains are going to be more important versus less important. And that was important for us, too, because if you really want to measure someone's aspirations, you have to take into account that if you have high aspirations in a domain and that domain happens to be everything you care about and very important, then we should sort of, as economists, put a little bit more weight on the domain that's very important to you. So I mentioned we had a game board with a, the five cells on the game board displayed right here. What we did is we gave people 100 units of local currency of SOMS, and we asked them, how would you like to distribute these 100 SOMS across the cells on the game board? If one area is all you care about, you could put all 100 SOMS on that area. If you equally valued all of these five domains, you could put 20 SOMS on each domain. But what this really allowed us to do was to compute the weight you personally place on each of these domains. And this is what we found. When we gave them the SOMs, on average, about a third of the money on the game board was being placed on the income section of the board. Um, next most important was assets with about 20% or, or, or one-fifth of your um, SOMs. And then we had education next, followed by security, and then social status a bit lower. Obviously, this is the average picture across all 2,500 households um, and, and well over 5,000 individuals but this is what we got on average. Now, how are aspirations formed? Well, aspirations are largely socially determined. Individuals basically form aspirations by observing people that are in their line of vision or cognitive window, to use a more technical term. But really, there is no single determinant of aspirations. Partly, aspirations are going to be influenced by these external factors like your social circle, your interactions with community members and with local and, and higher levels of government, but they can also be influenced by internal cognitive processes like your personality, your level of risk-taking, your awareness, your reasoning, your level of good judgment. All of these can influence what you aim to achieve in life. Um, so, why do we care about this as policymakers? This is good, well and good that individuals have aspirations, but why should policymakers care? I'm going to show you a few reasons why. First of all, I want to highlight the fact that we know that policymakers can move aspirations. To the extent that aspirations matter, this is really important because it means we have a toehold for policymakers to raise aspirations. A number of development interventions in different country contexts 
have been shown to raise aspirations. This has been done in several different ways. One is exposing individuals to role models, letting people know what others that are similar to them have been able to achieve through their own efforts. Um, Lori Beeman and co-authors have done this um, in South Asia. Um, Tangi Bernard, Alameo Seum Tefesi, and others have done this in Ethiopia. In Uganda, Riley has done this. Um, another way to raise its aspirations is introducing well-paid job opportunities. If people sort of see the prospect for improving their lives, they may become more ambitious. And finally, especially when you're looking at the aspirations of women, which I think uh, practitioners in development are paying increasingly more, more attention to what women are aiming to achieve. Increasing interactions of women with their peers can also help raise their aspirations. Now, what, we know policymakers have some ability to move aspirations, but why are low aspirations a problem at all? Why are they dangerous? A couple of reasons. First of all, Having low aspirations can lead to what we call a behavioral poverty trap. And that is kind of exactly what it sounds like, being trapped in poverty due to the behaviors that you exhibit that don't allow you to emerge from this situation of poverty. As Duflo and Dalton have shown, if the poor do not think that their future can be any better than it is today, then they can often select a low level of aspirations and they don't make any big effort to improve their lives. We also know that individuals with low aspirations can be afflicted by this sort of pathological conservatism, which means that they forego even small and feasible costs that they might pay, which could have large benefits because they're risk averse, afraid of losing what little they already possess. So they're not making those types of investments that to us are in more colloquial terms, no-brainers. They're not making some of those investments that really make sense for emerging from poverty. Why else are low aspirations dangerous? Well, from a development perspective, they can lead to wasted development spending or misguided policies. Many development interventions are focused on providing the poor with a plethora of opportunities that can help them pull themselves up by their bootstraps, providing cash, credit, training programs, opportunities to invest, opportunities to start small businesses. But individuals with low aspirations might not take up these opportunities or make maximal use of these opportunities. And that's really important when considering how we can have a bigger bang for our development uh, dollar. Why are high aspirations helpful? Well, there's some research showing that when individuals have high aspirations, they tend to end up having higher incomes in life. They tend to have better working conditions and more community leadership roles. So they're more often people that hold salaried or white collar jobs, and they have this profile in the community as being a community leader. Um, there's also research by Healy and co-authors, um, including myself as one of those co-authors, that shows that individuals who experience poverty and inequality often remain quiet about it, and don't do anything to try to hold their government accountable unless they have high aspirations. When those individuals have high aspirations, they do not tolerate poverty or a lack of accountability or a situation of inequality. They demand change from policymakers. So encouraging these citizen government interactions really 
demands that we raise the aspirations of individuals and try to foster government accountability in that way. And what I really want to talk to you about today is some IFPRI and PIM-funded research um, that shows that aspirations can also contribute to forward-looking economic, political, and social behaviors. I'm going to go over, uh, over some research by uh, Bernard et al., um, Kosick and Moe, and, um, and Kosick et al. that's going to look at each of these domains, economic, political, and social. Now, the first of these, uh, Bernard et al., um, is titled The Future in Mind, Aspirations and Forward-Looking Behavior in Rural Ethiopia. And these authors show that aspirations can be impacted in a durable way by a development intervention. And specifically, they made documentary films of individuals who have obtained great success in their lives through their own hard work and investments. So internal factors that led these individuals to achieve a lot in life. And they have a randomized experiment where they have some individuals who view these documentaries, some individuals who do not view these documentaries. So they can estimate very causal uh, impacts of having viewed a documentary. And they look at forward-looking economic behavior as an outcome. And they also look at just aspiration levels broadly as an outcome. And they find that individuals who viewed these inspirational videos are very different six months later. And in talking to them um, in a version of their paper not yet out, um, even more durably years after the fact, they're finding enduring impacts. What are the impacts? Well, number one, people that viewed this inspirational video have higher aspirations, but also they have more total savings. They take out more credit to make investments. They are more likely to have their children enrolled in school, and they have higher spending on the education of those children. So you can see the investment in trying to raise your income, your asset wealth, and the education of your children coming directly out of having viewed a video that tries to inspire you and raise your goals for the future. Now, another study I'd like to talk about uh, is called Aspirations and the Role of Social Protection, Evidence from a Natural Disaster in Rural Pakistan. And this is a paper that I put out with my colleague Cecilia Mo from the University of California, Berkeley, uh, in rural development in 2017. And we're considering here approximately 3,500 individuals, male and female, that are surveyed in 76 rural villages in Pakistan in 2012. And what we show is that controlling for a host of other factors, individuals with high aspirations engage in more forward-looking economic and political behaviors. And in particular, these high aspiring individuals are just like uh, Tangi Bernard and co-authors found in the Ethiopian context, they're more likely to take out cash loans. But we also find some interesting impacts on investments on the farm, in particular that high aspiring individuals tend to spend more on seeds per acre cultivated. And they're also a bit more entrepreneurial in the sense that they're more likely to operate a non-agricultural enterprise. But the, the benefits of having high aspirations don't appear to stop in the realm of economic behavior. If we look at political behavior, we find that individuals with high aspirations are more likely to vote, they're more likely to be a member of a political or civic organization, and they tend to have 
higher political knowledge in terms of being able to identify who is the prime minister um, and a couple other questions. So we have enduring political impacts of having higher aspirations as well. And I'll tell you a bit more about this study later, in particular looking at the role of government in impacting aspirations. The third study I wanted to talk about, uh, looking at the impacts of aspirations, is called Aspirations and Women's Empowerment, Evidence from Kyrgyzstan. It will be uh, coming out as an IFPRI um, and PIM-funded discussion paper next week. Um, but this paper uses data on the aspirations, gender attitudes, basically how egalitarian and supporting of women are your gender attitudes, and also reports about women's involvement in decision-making um, for women and their husbands in over 2,500 households that were surveyed in Kyrgyzstan in 2016. It was the Life in Kyrgyzstan survey. We employ an instrumental variable strategy in this paper where basically we're using a predicted value of aspirations that's based on some plausibly exogenous variation in aspirations to instrument for aspirations. And then we find that people with higher aspirations tend to have more egalitarian attitudes towards women, and they tend to involve women in household decision-making more often. Um, in particular, what we find is that when wives have higher aspirations and when husbands have higher aspirations, both the wife and the husband tend to have more egalitarian gender attitudes. They're more likely to say that women should be working outside the home, that women can be fulfilled in ways other than motherhood, that women should be involved in important decisions, etc. When we looked at women's actual reported involvement in the household in decisions, here we're basically looking at uh, we're looking at an indicator variable for the husband and wife agreeing that women are involved in decisions. And what we found here in this first column on consensus index is that when women have higher aspirations, they're more likely to be in a situation in which both the husband and the wife will agree that women are involved in major decision making. So this is important. It really suggests that raising women's aspirations can actually raise the likelihood that they're being consulted and involved in decisions that are made inside a rural household. We wanted to see which decisions are most impacted by aspirations. So we drilled down and looked at, we have 17 different types of decisions. They're in all sorts of different domains, but there's four domains we picked out, which are marital decisions, major economic decisions, financial management decisions, and non-financial decisions. And what we found is that aspirations most, mostly have their impact in economic and financial decision-making. Making decisions about who in the household is getting married and when, aspirations don't seem to matter for that. Making other non-financial decisions, aspirations don't matter much for that. But when you're talking about major economic decisions and financial management decisions, raising the wife's aspirations can contribute to her being involved in making those decisions. So we've talked about why aspirations are important. They contribute to these forward-looking economic, political, uh, and gender-related behaviors. Why is trust in government important? Well, as Fukuyama lays out uh, in more theoretical terms, social trust plays a role equal to that of physical capital in determining economic prosperity. If an economy is to grow, people must have trust in their government. A lack of trust can lead citizens to be disengaged and not demand accountability from their government. And when citizens are not demanding and holding policymakers accountable, 
especially elected policymakers, then there's less of a need to deliver for those citizens. And this is problematic when government is not delivering and yet individuals are not doing anything about it. So we want to focus on trust in government because we want government to have these well-established accountability relationships with citizens. How does poverty and economic vulnerability affect aspirations? Well, I'd like to cite two studies here, first by uh, Khan and, and Tasik, which shows that similar individuals living in communities with worse infrastructure um, or in communities without organized meetings to discuss uh, uh, community issues and events have lower aspirations. So there's some indication at least that higher, better infrastructure and having opportunities for citizen engagement, like, like meetings in the community, can contribute to higher aspirations. And a paper by Kosick and Moe, what I, I mentioned earlier um, from 2017, it shows that um, when there's negative economic shocks on a household, you see lowered aspirations. In particular, exposure to, uh, to Pakistan's devastating 2010 floods, which pretty much put one fifth of the country underwater, um, basically led to massively lowered aspirations a full 1.5 years after the flood. And we looked at long-term weather patterns and controlled for those so that we could look at unanticipated exposure to floods. Getting shocked with a flood you didn't expect had this major toll on aspirations. Now, how does poverty and economic vulnerability affect trust? Well, Two studies I'd cite here, Healy et al. and uh, Kosick and Mo, show that individuals in rural Pakistan who are experimentally primed to feel relatively poor, and I'll mention what we did in a minute, are less likely to trust their government than are individuals not primed to feel this way. And in particular, uh, what we did is that for one half of individuals, for all individuals, sorry, for all individuals, we asked what their income was. And we gave them five answer choices, A, B, C, D, or E. Tell me what, what answer choice best describes your income. Now, for half of the respondents, we so, uh, selected income choices here, um, ranges for each of these letters, that would mean that their income was likely to fall in the middle bucket, in bucket C. After they read these income choices, they mentally realize that their income is choice, answer choice C, they sort of feel like they're in the middle of the distribution. They're kind of in the middle of the pack. They're pretty typical. So they go away primed to feel relatively neutral about their aspirations. But for the other half of individuals, we read answer choices where the higher buckets were pretty much a lot uh, further above what an individual would reasonably in these types of communities earn. So individuals in the, bot, in the, in the second half of, of respondents were likely to be choosing answer choice A. When you're choosing answer choice A and you're being read a bunch of answer choices that are clearly richer than your income level, you're kind of primed to walk away from this feeling a little bit poor and relatively deprived compared to other people. Because when we read the answer choices, it indicates something to us about what natural or expected income ranges might be. And we find that individuals who are primed to feel poor tend to have less trust in their government. Um, and these trust questions, of course, were asked after the priming experiment was conducted. A paper by Evans et al. that's coming out in World Development in 2019 um, as part of some advertising here as part of a special issue I'm co-editing with Leonard Blanchikon from uh, Princeton University on the effects of information on rural uh, public service delivery. 
But this paper, Evans et al. 2019, shows that randomized receipts of a cash transfer program increases trust in government. So what we're seeing is that a program that is specifically targeted at the poorest of the poor to relieve conditions of poverty in rural Tanzania is, is durably increasing trust in government. So what can policymakers do to blunt the negative psychological effects of poverty and economic mobility? I'm going to talk about IFRI research from Cossack and Mo um, 2017, Cossack and Mo 2018, and Evans et al. 2019, and show you that government social protection can help address the negative impacts of poverty on aspirations and trust. The first two studies here are going to consider rural Pakistan, and the third is going to consider rural Tanzania. All right, so the first study here um, is looking at the flood shocks I mentioned in Pakistan. Remember these 2010 floods in Pakistan that put a fifth of the country underwater and massively lowered aspirations on average 1.5 years after the floods. But what we found in this study is that individuals who for plausibly exogenous reasons, which by which I mean somewhat random reasons, received flood relief via this program called the Watton Card Program that gave them an amount of income about equal to 10% of monthly income for a year, completely eliminated the negative impacts of the floods on aspirations. So you have this huge shock, aspirations go down, all of this reduction in aspirations, 100% of it, can be eliminated if you give timely and targeted social protection to those experiencing the shock. And what this means, we have lots of cost-benefit analyses that try to look at the value of social protection. And what we would point out with this study is that the value of social protection is being massively underestimated if you're not looking at the impacts of that social protection on aspirations. If individuals, as a result of the social protection, are more likely to make forward-looking good investments, more likely to engage in their communities, more likely to empower women, then that social protection is a lot more valuable than just what it is doing for restoring the asset and physical livelihoods of individuals. This is showing a map of the survey sites, and I just want to show you we've got the not affected, moderately affected, and severely affected districts in Pakistan. And you can see that we have dots, which are our survey villages, some of which are in the flooded areas, some of which are outside of the flooded villages. We, of course, controlled for long-term weather pattern and for long-term variability and a standard deviation of rainfall in these weather patterns so that we could try to look for exogenous flooding shocks. And this graphic here is basically showing you the more exposed to flooding an individual was, the lower their aspirations. We talked about this. But you see two lines here. There's people, this solid line here is people who got flood relief. They got this program called the Watton Card Program that gave them timely flood relief. And what we see is that there is essentially very little impact, a very, not a very steep line there. And the confidence intervals around that line are such that we cannot, um, uh, we cannot reject that, that the um, flood shocks had no impact on aspirations. But for this, this much steeper line here is showing you people that did not receive flood relief, that did not receive the Watton Card program. And as we see more exposure to monsoon, rainfall, and flooding, we see that aspirations are going down further and further, 
And the confidence interval, uh, which is quite narrow here, shows you that we can absolutely reject that there is no impact on individual's aspirations here. There was definitely a reduction in aspirations coming along with more exposure to extreme rainfall. All right, the next paper I'd like to talk about is um, a, an experiment from Pakistan, uh, Kossak and Mo 2018. Now, remember how we talked about individuals that uh, were primed to feel relatively poor? They became less trusting of their government, right? Well, what we found with this study is that social protection can blunt these negative impact on trust. We compared individuals in households who were just below a wealth cutoff, so they did not get access to a social protection cash transfer program, with individuals just above a wealth cutoff, who, uh, just above, who, who did not. So we have people on either side of this cutoff score who barely got or barely didn't get a cash transfer program. And we found that distrust in government because of feeling poor didn't occur among people who got the social protection program. It only occurred among the people who did not get the social protection program. And remember, this is experimental and quasi-experimental evidence here. So we hope we can interpret these estimates as the causal impacts of social protection, at least among individuals in the neighborhood of a cutoff score for getting a cash transfer program, which I think is a very relevant neighborhood of people um, in the world of policymakers who are deciding how to, how to improve people's livelihoods. And this graphically shows the results here. We have people that received a poverty prime. These are the triangles. We have people who got no poverty prime, uh, and these are the diamonds. And we see that even with these confidence intervals here, the triangles are way over to the right meaning we have that among these people that got no poverty prime, we have a very high um, support for government, trust in institutions, feelings that citizens' rights are protected, uh, trust in the political system. But among, among people who, um, who um, so among people who had no poverty prime, we have basically no, no negative impacts at all on these, um, on these outcomes. So effectively we find that Having been primed to feel poor makes you lose confidence in your government. Now, mind you, this is a very light touch. We are not actually making people poor. We are just momentarily making them feel a little bit like, relatively speaking, they might be a little poorer than other individuals. And we find these enduring impacts where you're less trusting of your government and feel that leaders aren't even doing a good job because you got this prime. All right, and the final paper I wanna talk about, um, Evans et al considered approximately 1,700 households in rural Tanzania. They were surveyed three times. In 2009, before uh, a 2010 cash transfer program was randomly implemented in half of villages, at midline in 2011, and at endline in 2012. And we find that cash transfers increased trust in leaders and perceptions of leaders' responsiveness and honesty. Uh, and beneficiaries reported higher trust in elected leaders, but not appointed bureaucrats. So we're really having this increase in trust in the elected leaders who have, have helped roll out this program. These are the results here. And what we find is that we have this initial impact on trust, which one might worry maybe this, this wears off. At 2011, we had this one, one and a half years into the program, people were more likely to trust leaders. But we find in the end line in 2012, um, we have an even larger, um, not statistically distinguishable, but of an even larger positive impact on trust. So this appears to be pretty during, enduring. So what have we learned? First of all, poverty, inequality, and negative economic shocks 
can lower individuals' aspirations or goals for the future and can erode their trust in government. This matters because aspirations and tr trust really contribute to good things that we care about as policymakers, entrepreneurship, productive investments, civic engagement, gender equity, and ultimately individuals' welfare. Government has the ability to counteract these negative impacts of poverty, inequality, and shocks, and they can do so through the provision of targeted social protection. So finally, I'd like to underscore that if we ignore the psychological benefits of social protection programs, we may underestimate their overall benefits. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much, Katrina. I think it was a wonderful presentation pulling together so many related uh, and interesting studies. And I think on a topic that most of us don't really know much about and reflect on. So I think it was very, for me, very eye-opening and I, I learned a lot. And I think there's a lot of um, uh, implications for all of us in research on, on thinking more about psychological aspects of our, of our research. So thank you very much. I, we have we have a couple of questions I, I think that came in around methodological issues um, if I would so one was um, when that came in was about how, how do you how do you make sure that you measure realistic um, uh, or meaningful aspirations for example that people are not really exceeding what is feasible a, a feasible set of aspirations to have so how do you make sure that your methods uh, okay address that all right, thanks so much for this question. Um, I think it's a really important question because measurement is really, it's critical, it's challenging, and summing up something as difficult as psychological impacts um, of, of a program is, is, is challenging. So we definitely have to, to pay a lot of attention to measurement. I definitely engaged in a lot of um, field testing on this one as well because I, I, I was, um, really wanting to see how individuals respond to these questions. Do they take them seriously or are they just being pushed to throw out a number? So we worked extensively on getting the wording right and talking to individuals. The good thing is that often after asking a suite of questions in a kind of boring, I'll be honest, multi-topic household survey where they're asking how many you know, cups of rice they're consuming in the last week, um, talking to them about their aspirations is actually somewhat of an exciting and changing uh, different part of the survey. So we did find that there was actually a lot of desire to get good answers and to take it seriously. And the individuals are actually kind of becoming alert and awake again to answer this module after a lot of drudgery in terms of uh, trying to help us uh, understand their situation of poverty. So that kind of helps. Now, to the extent that individuals um, are really giving you realistic goals for themselves, it's possible that there's some exaggerations. I would say that if people were being fully unrealistic, we would have everyone being given, um, you know, goals that are seem absolutely un infeasible, right? Things that are just, I want to get 5,000% more income and I want to um, have the asset wealth of the richest person in the country. And what I can say is we did not get that. We often got that kind of typical aspirations tended to be trying to get around to the 80 or 90th percentile on average of what you really see in terms of income, which is not an unrealistic hope is mm -hmm. to say that I want to get something. But I would say that at the median, the fact that the median aspirations tended to be within the range of actual income and assets in these societies is encouraging. I think though it takes, it, it takes um, a lot of training of enumerators to tell people, we want your goals, what you think you would like to achieve, um, and um, making sure that people are taking this seriously. But um, 
that, that's one challenge. Another challenge, of course, is trying to get the domains right. Um, in the past, in, in uh, Bernard et al. study in Ethiopia, they used four domains. Um, we added the fifth domain of security in Kyrgyzstan to see how that would how that would go. Doing more than that can be kind of hard to ask about, but um, there's not no wrong way to do this. Okay, good. And uh, is there uh, is this still uh, the methodologies are still kind of being evaluated and tested? And do you have to have a different approach in different contexts? Let's say. Yeah. So I would say that the methodology is definitely being evaluated, although. Many people have used aspiration indices of the type that I've constructed in the research here and that um, uh, Tangi Bernard and co-authors have constructed in their research in Ethiopia. So I think this index um, is sort of a, you know, it's a method published in the Journal of African Economies. Um, these, and, and more and more studies are coming out using the same index. I think that's a good uh, testament to the value of the index. Um, certainly we, there's other ways to do things. We've looked separately in some of our work at the different domains of aspirations rather than combining them into an index to understand the impacts on particular domains, which might be different. In terms of context specific, that's kind of why in, in one sense we want the weights on the various dimensions mm -hmm. of aspirations. I think the weights individuals place on social status, for example, vary vastly across different contexts. So allowing for individual specific and not only country specific, but individual specific weights sort of helps us get something that's more locally appropriate. Great. Um, a question, another question came in about the types of aspirations and whether we can consider all types to be positive in the nature. So which mm -hmm. question came in to note that, um, you know, noted the, uh, that there's low savings levels uh, across, the, across the world and actually in many countries. Uh, as a result of higher consumption standards that are set by kind of a reference to consumption levels of the, and styles of the wealthy people. So maybe if, if people could express their aspirations in terms of consumption, you know, um, it could actually lead to uh, significant debt and more vulnerability. And so is that necessarily a positive thing to be setting aspirations that way? Or uh, how does the research kind of counter that there could be aspirations that are not always uh, so, so high, high, high consumption aspirations not right. being very much sustainable is that uh, sort or, of a or possibly, possibly at the at at the con you know at the possibly at the um, uh, risk of, of of having no you know trying to achieve those in a very short term perspective at the at the uh, uh, offsetting uh, your savings in long term perspective I guess got it got it. This is a very, very relevant question. Uh, we've looked at income and assets. Consumption is often actually the way we measure. Yeah. Getting measures of income can be challenging in a lot of survey contexts, so getting consumption is, is more common. It's not really a domain we've considered as much, um, So, but it's, it's relevant. Uh, whether or not it's negative, well, I, I don't know. I think it also depends on your model of the, the, the discount rates of the poor and how much right. they consider their own future um, being valuable versus the present being valuable. Um, in a lot of these, though, I will say that when we're talking about aspirations, we're not talking about today. What do you want to achieve right. today? We're kind of already talking a bit about the longer term. Okay. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that in a sense, by, by kind of thinking about where you ultimately want to get in life, whatever that goal moment is for you and when you want to achieve it, whether it's the day you retire or within five years, uh, that you want to achieve this goal, it's definitely um, uh, not so much focused on what do you want to build up to immediately today, right. the future be gone. So I kind mm -hmm. of, the aspirations concept and hopeful is there. 
it is already capturing some future mindedness. Right. And another thing I want to say is one domain of aspirations, at least in the context of looking at how aspirations impact women's empowerment, we've considered is whether social status mm -hmm. aspirations are actually a good thing or a bad thing for women's empowerment. Um, we're, um, you know, it's kind of one aspiration where men may feel their social status is lowered by women being more involved visibly in decision making. So that's one domain where you wonder aspirations in different domains may have different impacts. It's also a reason in papers about aspirations to always do those extra results that look at the um, individual domains of aspirations and not just the overall index. Great. One last question I think on the methods is, is in terms of try, trying to tease out what's influencing what because it, it's observed that people with uh, high aspirations may generate more income, but yet people with higher income might have higher aspirations, you know, that kind of circularity. The same with women's uh, um, decision-making ability and aspirations, there could be some circularity there. So what is it, how, how can you kind of tease out the, the causality? This is um, a fundamental question for being able to say something causal about aspirations, and I do think it's of first-order importance. Um, First of all, there's been a few experimental, when you're looking at the impacts of aspirations, studies like Tongi Bernard's are great because they have viewing uh, videos of inspirational stories as sort of this um, causal increase in aspirations. And then you can kind of understand what else has been causally increased by viewing the videos and therefore presumably is coming through the channel of higher aspirations. So that's one sense. When we're looking at the impacts of, of different things on aspirations this is the getting causality means finding exogenous variation in some other factor for example um, Cecilia Mo and I looking at the impacts of the 2010 floods and trying to control for long-term weather weather patterns so we could look at a kind of a causal impact of floods there when we looked at the impacts of social protection um, we were looking at uh, a rule in Pakistan which is that 50% of households had to be negatively impacted in a village for members of that village to get flood relief. So you can kind of compare and imagine a village where 49% versus 51% of the households are negatively impacted by the floods. One, they're very similar, but one village is getting flood relief for all of their victims and the other is not. So that was one way to deal with causality there. Another thing is the, the um, cash transfer program in Pakistan, where we had a poverty score for each household. And we could see how you know there's a cutoff if you had a poverty score it was a wealth score actually if your score was above 16.16 you were too wealthy for the program and if it was below you were perfectly fine and you got the program so we do some regression discontinuity design analysis this is not a paper that's out yet but we started it and have some results that we think are, are, are meaningful um, and that was a way using an rdd um, or regression discontinuity design where we could look at causal impacts on aspirations in the paper recently I mentioned on looking at the effects of aspirations on women's empowerment in particular, um, what we are doing there is a simulated instrumental variable strategy. And we basically take the fact that the weights that your community places on the various domains of aspirations likely influence the weights you personally place on income versus social status versus education. So we estimate what your aspirations are using community rates rather than your own weights. So we use all of your aspirations in the five dimensions, but then when we're summing them up and creating an aspiration index, we use these community weights instead of your own weights. This creates a predicted aspiration index, and we instrument for your aspiration index with this predicted index. And, and we, we would argue this, that this is a, 
a good, it's a very strong instrument. I mean, we have F statistics over a thousand in some cases. This is by design, it's, it's pretty strong. We're also controlling for those community weights in the regression. We're controlling for your own weights in the regression. We're actually controlling for quadratics in those weights to allow them to have a nonlinear impact. So you really, the identifying assumption here is simply that this linear combination of, of, of community weights, it's only affecting your aspirations um, um, only affecting women's empowerment through its effect on your aspirations. So we do some tests to try to convince you of that assumption, um, but I, I definitely believe this was a paper where we felt like we had to do something to get at causal identification and we chose an instrument of variable strategy. It's challenging because in general not all of us have the ability to start showing videos to raise aspirations, um, but there are other ways I would say through quasi-experimental techniques and instrumental variable techniques that can help you get at causality. Great, thanks. Okay, so we had a couple of questions uh, about uh, about these uh, linkages between social protection and uh, and uh, uh, other aspirational and trust uh, uh, results that you found. So um, a question came in that said um, they were wondering why people who have felt poor have less trust in government. What is what is the mechanism for that? And also. How does then social protection act as a cushion for this? Um, so, she she the 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 person says, well, uh, getting something from the government can increase trust. They're quite understanding of that, but she's not clear on the other way around about the, the trust versus. Uh, I think. Um, uh, well, actually, I'm not quite sure about that question now that I see it. But anyway, so the the question about it. So the yeah, What's basically, the yeah, why works? why is it? Why is that happening? Yeah, no, this is important. Why Why would people, why is trust kind of um, dependent on what you get and which directions does this go? First of all, you know, if we, let's just step back from developing world. We know that presidential approval ratings in this country depend on what's happening with the stock market. They depend on what's happening to unemployment rates. People in general tend to feel that government is doing the right things if they are seeing their consumption go up, if they are seeing their retirement savings grow, and if they're seeing positive economic conditions. Whether the attribution is correct or not, there is a lot of mm -hmm. tendency just in general human behavior to credit an incumbent administration. Literature from my colleague Cecilia Mo here has even showed that when the um, home sports team wins the you know incumbents are more likely to to, to be reelected. Mm. there's a, if weather is good on election day also very good for incumbents they're getting credit for the weather even they mm -hmm. we know they can't control these things mm -hmm. but we're still getting credit so there's this tendency in the human mind to associate good outcomes with the government having done something and therefore giving trust same with the cash transfer program if you are effectively getting a program then there's some tendency to give the government credit. What we found in this paper, and I, with David Evans and um, uh, Brian Holtemeyer, um, which I didn't mention, is that not only does getting a cash transfer program increase trust, but all of these impacts on trust are a lot larger in communities where there were um, com uh, regular community meetings to discuss village issues and events. Effectively, it was not enough for people to just get cash from the government, they had to get cash from the government and then have a great information mechanism that would make them aware of the selection process, what had happened, what role government took, 
how they can give feedback on the process. So the real reward, the trust reward that came with the government giving them the social protection depended critically on having a high information environment where the government is giving them a chance to have their voices heard mm -hmm. and people are convinced that the program is being rolled out fairly as opposed to wondering whether or not it might be corrupted somehow. So there's really a value for information here as well, but I think it's just a tendency mainly to reward government um, or punish them based on mm. what's happening in your bottom line. Right. I guess that, that when you said uh, that the implementation is done fairly uh, with this with this other kind of community dialogue, that comes to this other question that came in about whether cash, cash transfers can actually create mistrust if there's mistargeting, you know, or, or people are favored over another uh, uh, unfairly. So maybe that I think you may have just answered that, but yeah. if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, well. no, no, I, I, I agree. I yeah. think this is really important. And in Tanzania, we're actually, we're evaluating a local community managed cash transfer program, which is not super common. The more central run um, uh, modality is more common. Um, but having the local officials in this context, they were identifying the beneficiary, imposing the conditions. So if people were not sending their kids to school and bringing them to health clinics, they cut them off and they observed what they were doing. Um, and there was a lot of community involvement here in, in it. They were often just going to people's houses and telling them, get your kids to school. I don't want to have to cut you off. So there was a lot of um, interactions there. So there's definitely the possibility when the local community is involved, they have their friends, they could, we heard a little, we did a lot of qualitative field work, which is more insightful mm -hmm. for seeing that. Um, we found very little feelings in the quantitative data of mistargeting, but we did hear some people mm -hmm. saying that you know, some instances where they wondered about whether it was fair. Um, so I'm sure that there's suspicion anytime. Um, but the fact that, you know, community meetings can contribute to the sense of fairness, I think is a real lesson for policymakers that it's not important to just give a program, but also to make sure people know it's been given out fairly. Um, a question came in. So a lot of your um, evidence and outcomes were with uh, private kind of private benefits of higher aspirations and more investment and uh, and so forth. So the question came in about whether there's any evidence about um, positive outcomes on collective action or community level mm. or manage, community management or, or things like that as a result of higher aspirations, uh, let's say within households or communities. That, that That's a great question. And, and we have, we've looked at political outcomes um, with uh, Cecilia Mo and, and I in the uh, 2017 World Development Paper, we looked at community outcomes like in involvement in a civic organization um, and participation in meetings and, and found some, some positive impacts on being a member of a civic organization. We didn't look at the next step, which is, does this actually result in, um, uh, you know, having a, uh, community development projects rolled out. I think that would be an interesting direction to look mm -hmm. at future work. I really think that that's important and it, it, it suggests that that could be heading there. We, because we had sort of correlational analysis in that study, it was sort of to motivate the rest of the paper and the initial analysis. Um, we were slightly wary of trying to go beyond the first steps, which is changing behavior to look at changing actions um, further down downstream. But I, I think that's very valuable and important for future research, especially research that can causally identify impacts of aspirations. Great. And maybe it's kind of a, a related question is that if you were to try to target uh, people with low aspirations and trying to figure out how to raise those in various ways with videos or other kinds of things. Um, in your studies with these large samples, are, can you were you able to tell how much of the variation in aspirations is really kind of at a 
a higher district level versus a village level versus intra-village? Like, how, how much variation is there? Do you, is there a lot of people with low aspirations scattered through every village? Is it some villages have tend to have higher ones and lower ones? Or that, that's, a, that's a good question um, and hard to answer for me right now, um, but I, I do want to look at the data and get back to you on that one. Um, but what we found in general is that people, there was quite a wide variety of aspirations. Aspirations are highly correlated with already having high levels of, of these five domains, so we're always careful to control for the current levels when considering the impacts of aspirations. It's also correlated with things like being male um, as well. Men tend to be a bit more um, ambitious, um, but you do see quite a variation um, even within a, a given community. Um, urban areas, tend, people often tend to have higher aspirations. That might be because you're viewing opportunities for upward mobility and um, um, in, in urban areas, but um, but yeah, there, there there was quite a variation. I can't on the on the spot uh, characterize the you know, within community versus between community amount of variation, but could certainly get back on that, and that is an important question. Okay, maybe um, but I'm trying to see if we can. We had another question that came in. I mean, talking about um, the fact that we have kind of a, a universal approach to our social protection pro programs uh, across, you know. Um, yeah the, yeah, the programs don't counter or cater for a lot of different nuanced mm -hmm. contexts and so forth. And you're finding uh, with the, the, the studies that have you, you have done, would you suggest that um, the other factors be taken into consideration in social pro protection programs, given the way that they've had these uh, other kinds of effects on aspirations yeah. and trust and other things? Is there a way to make them more nuanced to cultural context, for example? Um, very good question. The design of uh, optimal social protection programs is, is a, a thorny issue, um, in particular sort of anything that departs from a very clearly defined set of rules, like here's a poverty, you know, a wealth score cutoff, um, can get a politically charged as a decision. Um, you know, in the Pakistan context, there were some exceptions for disabled people, um, uh, individuals with very high numbers of uh, dependents, um, et cetera, where they could get um, the program despite even being a little bit um, above the one wealth score. So there are some exceptions to the to the rules. I know there are some programs that have multiple cutoffs for different people. Um, when those are politically feasible is very much a question of policy. I guess I would say that what we're finding is that it's um, the experience of you know counteracting any kind of sort of negative feelings to government um, is critical and social protection can do that. Um, it helps to go to places where people are poor, obviously, but also places where there's high levels of inequality can be especially um, important for government um, to avoid aspirations failures. I would say that any poor person, their level of poverty alone on some level can tell you about what type of amount of social protection they should receive. But if you take two identical poor people and one of them is in a context that is severe levels of income equality, inequality that are visible to that person and they see these stark contrasts with, uh, between what they have and what others have. If you were to give that individual a bit more social protection, it could be good at least from an aspiration standpoint. If your goal is to raise aspirations and to keep trust in government high, then more money should be targeted to poor individuals in very unequal contexts as opposed to poor individuals in very equal contexts. Again, we have many goals with social protection though. It, right. it, the sole goal is not to address the psychological impacts of poverty. Addressing poverty itself um, is often the central goal. So it really depends on your goals and, and what's politically feasible. Great. 
maybe I'll, let, I'll finish with one more question. Um, so we've heard a little bit about how, how research is starting to embrace this concept and doing more. Perhaps you would say that much more needs to be done, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But I have a question about uh, other partners, development partners. Now, has so the concept of the importance of aspirations and work and, and understanding them in your communities that you're working in and, and trying to also build those as well, is that taking off at all with NGOs or other kind of governments and other kinds of partners that uh, usefully use this information? <laughs> yeah, no, really great question. Um, I, I think some NGOs in Ethiopia and Pakistan have showed an interest in sort of aspirational videos as a, as a potential intervention. Um, the International Growth Center has helped us fund some inspirational videos. This is joint work with um, Claire Lever, uh, Masuma Habib, um, uh, Noreen Karachiwala, and Sahar Assad in Pakistan, where we've got inspirational videos for teachers um, to see teachers that have been very successful and what does that do for their intrinsic uh, motivation levels um, and other factors. So I, I think there is increasing interest in causal ways to improve aspirations. Absolutely agree with your assessment that more remains to be done. And I think measurement is a key issue in convincing people that we've got a measure of aspirations that's meaningful um, and i think that the literature the empirical literature has been pouring in over the last um uh, five to seven years before that a lot of the literature on aspirations a, a decade ago was purely theoretical no one had done anything to empirically evaluate and understand it i think with evaluation and measurement comes more interest and comes more knowledge about the levers that we could employ great well, thank you once again, Katrina, for that very interesting and inspiring talk. And I think, uh, you know, I encourage any of you online, if you have further interest, to please follow Katrina. She'd love to build a community. <laughs> so uh, thank you all. And uh, well, happy holidays to everyone. And we'll um, come back in the new year with a whole new set of uh, webinars from Tim. So thank you once again. Thank you so Bye. much.